Hello, everyone. My name's Jack Fernan, and this is Exploring Existence, a podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through the lens of personal experiences. Today on the podcast, I spoke with Christopher McGarry. Christopher is a follower of the Siddha Yoga tradition, which is an Indian tradition developed by Swami Muktananda in the early 20th century. Christopher is one of the earliest followers of Siddha Yoga in Australia and has dedicated most of his life to following the tradition. He is also a retired surgeon and used to use the teachings that he learnt in Siddha Yoga and the skills that he developed to assist with his medical practice and with his patients. And so, everyone, thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, Chris, thanks for joining me today. You're welcome, Jack. Um, and we're here at the City uh, Yoga Ashram in Sydney, it? actually. Yeah, in Sydney. But there's, um, you were telling me before that there's a few, there's two City Yoga Ashrams in Australia. In Australia, yes. And then a couple in the US and the original one. In India, that's is that correct? Yeah, there's a Siddha Yoga Ashram in India, which was the one that Baba Muktananda established, and that was where his guru sent him to stay. He gave him the land, and he stayed there, and he's still there. He's it's where he left his body and his body is still buried there. So it's an amazing experience to go there and, and, and his energy is still fully there. So, so you've been there? Yes, actually I went there in February this year oh, and wow. I hadn't been there a long time before that. Yeah, and what was, what was that like going there? It's like entering um, one's own heart. It's just, it's like, well, how do you, you, I always burst into tears when I walk into there. Yeah, wow. I just find that I get so much in touch with my own love that I just experience fully God's love in that place, in the silence and the beauty of the gardens and and where Baba had lived and where he still is, it's the centre of the universe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and do do you want to um, do you want to just tell us a little bit about um, Muktananda's life and and sort of his his journey and I suppose and by doing that the development of of Siddha Yoga. Well, I'm not sure whether I'm an expert enough to tell you on his life. His, um, he wrote a book called Play of Consciousness in which he just, this is his, his autobiography in which he describes a lot of his um, spiritual life, a lot of, and from the time that he received spiritual, spiritual initiation from his guru, Bhagavan Nichananda, Till the moment he understood and totally realised, recognised his um, his nature, his own nature as being divine, and uh, then and also there's a number of chapters on the sort of life that he envisages his students living. 
there's um I think there's a there's a part in the play of conscious where, consciousness where he speaks about all his desire for all people in the world to become saints. Yeah, well, depend. I'm yeah, because he knew what he meant by that, and uh, we're not. When we all are guessing at what that might mean, I don't really exactly know what he meant, but I know that he <laughs> was looking at a world in which people would experience love and happiness and joy. They'd treat treat themselves well. They'd look after the world so that it's sustainable and going to be beautiful for the future generations. I would call that a world full of saints. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I can't really talk a lot about Baba and his life. I can only really talk about my experience of where where, um, I did come into contact with him and he has such a profound effect on my life. That's... The important thing. Mm. And do you want to tell us where where did you start your your spiritual journey um, from as when early I was on? Born, when I was born into this world, yeah. I started my spiritual journey. Um, I was always looking for something beyond this, although I wasn't aware of it. Uh, I had the nickname. At school, where I was always being teased, wasn't very good at being teased. I was called Missionary Mouse. <laughs> and missionary, I guess, because I was looking for something beyond the, the world, something spiritual, and mouse, because at least one of my ears sticks out, like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> so that was. And it's got that nice alliteration that <laughs> kids just zone in on. So. Anyway, then when I uh, went to the medical school to study my career as a doctor, um, a lot of the stuff that I had learned in the church didn't make sense anymore because it didn't wasn't consistent with the scientific approach that I was learning. It wasn't sustainable to examination. So I left that behind and I to- became totally immersed in my career as a medical practitioner. And, and what, what were you doing in that, in that career? Were you doing Well, any- I graduated and then I did postgraduate training as a surgeon and I became a surgeon. And I found that really fulfilling. What I was mainly wanting to do was to be able to help people. And I was very fortunate and I found a lovely person while I was in England and we got married and we came back to Sydney and I had a great job and we had a great family coming up. Um, But even though everything was working out perfectly in my life and it was an ideal life really, but it wasn't it there was still a part of me that was saying this, there's something more, there's something that's really important that I'm not, that I don't know about. 
And I started looking at all sorts of weird and wonderful spiritual groups and practices and things. At one time I was walking around the wards with bells around my ankles because, well, it seemed to be the right thing to do at the time and that was part of something that I was, I was always experimenting with different ways of being. And I, I actually tried a number of uh, spiritual groups at that time and they were all exciting and new but they all got to a point when it just wasn't leading anywhere, or at least anywhere that I appreciated as being what I was looking for. And then there came a time when a friend brought a, a newspaper home from a spiritual bookstore in town, and he said, oh, you might be interested in this. And on the front of that newspaper was a big picture of Baba Muktananda looking straight at you like you're looking at me now. And when I looked into his eyes, I knew he knew what I wanted to know. (laughs) (laughs) I just knew that, and I wanted to know what it was. And I had this incredible upwelling of wanting to know what he had to teach me. And it said in the paper that he did a a weekend, City Yoga Shaktipat Intensive in Melbourne, and it was the last weekend and he was going to be leaving and going overseas again after that. So I rang them up and I said, oh, yes, my wife also. When I told her I wanted to do this, she said, oh, well, I'd better come with you. I don't want you going down and meeting a guru in Melbourne and not coming home again. Because <laughs> in those days, gurus were pretty, their, their reputation was pretty bad. There'd been a few nasty incidents. Anyway, so we both agreed to go down to Melbourne and take the intensive. We, I certainly didn't know what was going to happen. It was very open. Then, uh, so it was very crowded. There was everyone, a lot and lots of people were, were wanted to come and experience what I was wanting to experience too. And we were sitting in this crowded hall with the lights down and the master ceremony said, we're now going to chant the mantra. I'd heard about mantras. And the, he said, the words are up on the wall, which they were, lit up on the wall, on the Shavaya. And uh, he said, we'll chant, just listen to the people singing it, listen to the melody and join in as much as you can. So I said, okay, here we go. And uh, I did that. I, tr- I listened and I joined in. And, and as I started singing, it, uh, it just started, it, did, it seemed to have a power of its own. It was drawing my awareness deeper and deeper into my own being. And suddenly there was a sort of release in the area of my heart, or it's hard to describe, but... I started experiencing so many different emotions because I'd been brought up in a family where boys don't cry and I had held on to my emotions all my life. And so all of this uh, sadness and guilt and 
happiness and love and all sorts of stuff started pouring out of me. I continued to do my best to sing, but I couldn't really sing much because I was just crying. Tears were pouring down my face. No one else was noticing because everyone else in the room was doing whatever they were doing. It was quite noisy, actually, in those days. So, but even, that, even though that was happening, somehow it wasn't me. I was in a different place and I was just watching all this emotion being released. And as I continued to chant, I just was drawn even deeper inside my being and I ended up in a place of total stillness. And that total stillness was permeated by love. It was just love. And I sat there, I don't know how long that lasted, but all this emotion and all this turbulence and stuff was going and all the noise in the room, I was still aware of all of that. And yet I was totally still and totally open to love. And eventually the chanting stopped and uh, we were back at the, for the, more of the event. But that experience was so real. It, was, it took a little while before it faded and I realized that that was the missing ingredient. That was really what I wanted to know, that place, that power inside me. That became the focus of my life from then on. And of course, <clears throat> at that intensive, I learned that the way to access that place is through meditation, chanting and meditation. And so meditation became a daily practice for me from then on. And over, over a period, I've kind of understand that experience and I've kind of understand that is there always and it's there for me to access at any time. Not at any time, but just to be there as I'm relating to others, as I'm relating to the world. And that really gives me great well, power, if you like, to be able to cut through the negativity and to see that at the basis of all of the things that are going on, there's actually it's, there's a lot of goodness in people. Even people who behave badly, there's goodness in them. And what I've found is if I relate to them in that way, then it's a different relationship. It changed my, for example, it changed my the way I related to my patients. When uh, people came to me because of my specialty, which was in breast surgery, people would have cancer. And it's not very good news to give people and they, um, well, it, it raises a lot of fear in people. And when I was, when I'd talk to them about this, I wouldn't talk to the fear, I would talk to the strength inside them because I knew that that, that I had experienced myself was everywhere, it was in everybody. 
And as I would talk to that, and as much as I could from my own place of love and stillness, and talk to that in them, it really was really supportive for them. Even those ones when the cancer came back, and it got, you know, it, worse in terms of their prognosis. But if we were able to relate to that place of strength, that place of love inside them, it really contributed towards transforming their lives. And there are quite a number of them confided. They say, I'm almost glad that I have cancer because I've changed my life. My life has changed so much as a result. And I attribute that to that initial experience. I attribute that to the power of the guru. And, and so in, when those people say that they're thankful for the cancer, is that they have, they've now developed a, a different perspective on their, their life and, and the value of their life and, and the value. Yeah, their life has a value and purpose that it didn't have before. And for you, that, that experience down in Melbourne in the intensive, that, that gave you a similar experience of giving you a, a, a driving purpose. It wasn't a driving purpose, really. It, was, it really was a focus. It was like a lighthouse. But it's interesting you, um, you, you come out of that experience, which you were saying you, you've sort of gone deep inside yourself and, and come to a, a centre of serenity within yourself. But afterwards you're your view of others recognises th that. That in others. Yeah. Well, of course, the, the whole point is that it's universal. It's what, what I recognise in myself wasn't mine. It's, it's the, the love and the stillness which underlies everything. And it, because it underlies everything everywhere, it's within everybody everywhere. It's within every animal, it's within every plant, every rock. It's the basis on which this all exists. And so you gain you gain a recognition of the of the of the unity of everything. Yes. And I suppose in, in theological terms it's that that, that non-dualism between the divine and the the material world which we perceive in a day-to-day day-to-day life well there is only the divine we are that we are the divine and that's what i experienced but i didn't know that at the time it was a profound experience and it's only subsequent to that that I've been studying the teachings of the City Yoga Gurus, which have helped me understand what that experience is about. And as I've understood it more and I've continued the practices, which have continued to help me access that more in my life over time, 
the combination of understanding its nature and experiencing it allows me to actually make it real for me. It allows it to be real. It's allowed, I, rec- I can recognize it. Yeah, so you, you, you've, you had that initial experience and you realized that there was, there was something to this and there was yeah. something to the teachings of, um, of, of the Baba. And so It wasn't even an intellectual thing. Like I didn't come out of it and say, ah, oh, now I'm going to pursue this. It didn't happen like that. It came out I wanted to meditate. I just wanted to meditate. And when I meditated, it got me closer to there and that really felt good it felt like this is what i'm want to do this is what i'm meant to do and slowly it just became a natural part of my life and and you started to delve into the into the teachings at that well stage. naturally then i wanted to know what yeah. had happened to me so i started <laughs> to read the teachings and the, the the explanations were so spot on they're so consistent with what I had experienced that it all became a reality. And and you were talking before about uh, when when you started to do your your medical training, there was, I suppose, inconsistencies between what you were learning through that training and then what the church was teaching to you at that younger age. Did you, was there any, um, once you started to delve into these teachings of Siddhi Yoga, was there any, did you see any inconsistencies there well, still well, between? One of the things that I wanted to do when I, after I'd received Shaktipat initiation was to read what Jesus had said. So I went back to the Bible, which I hadn't read for years, but I specifically wanted to look at those sections where where people had recalled what Jesus had said. And I read that and I experienced that and I understood that in a totally different way from what I had understood it before. And I understood what Jesus was talking about and he was saying, love thy neighbour. He's talking about experience, that universal love which is within all of us. Love thy enemy, imagine, you know. In those days, of course, there were lots of enemies and it's hard to understand what that would mean until you actually experience that love, that experience the divinity that exists everywhere. Then you can understand why saying, also see the love in your enemies. We're all manifestations of that love. As I was reading what he was saying, I had tears in my eyes. I totally understood where he was coming from. And one of one of uh, Baba's key messages is that um, if you want to get involved in City Yoga, you don't have to leave behind the religious traditions that you've born been born out of. And so he's very sort of welcoming of Christianity, of of Buddhism, of, of Islam, of, of of Judaism, and he tries to. Develop a well, I'm not sure whether I said exactly that, but he did say that the true religion is to know the self, is to know the divinity within yourself, which is everywhere. That's the true religion. 
he didn't, he, Baba never denied or put down any other approach, any other religion. But he kept us, kept always taking us back to the essence of all religion, which is the experience of the heart. I, I know, I heard that once Baba was asked a question, because he used to often, um, Receive questions and answer them in, in the public evening events. And he was asked, you know, you sit up there on a chair and there's all these people down on the floor um, wanting to hear every word you say and having these amazing experiences as a result of your presence. What's the difference between you and these other people? And I understood that he said, well, really, there's no difference. We're all one. But then he said, well, maybe there is one small difference, that most people forget who they are, that I, I know who I am. And when he says, I know who I am, he's meaning, I know that... I know I'm divine. We're, all of you are divine, but you f tend to forget your own greatness. Yeah. And that's what he wanted. He wanted everyone to recognize their own greatness, to recognize their own divinity. And when we mean divinity, we're talking about essential love and, and unity, caring. Yeah, U unity of, the, of people as well as, as things. In the trees outside, in the rocks, in, in the grass, in everything. In everything. There is that divine spark. Well, it's not so much a spark, it is everything. But then if if there's if it's in everything um, It's not in everything. It is everything. It is everything. There's nothing else then how how do how do people uh forget well why do children like to play hide and seek did you play hide and seek yeah you got children great game i don't have any not kids, yet but, but you probably had other children yeah, that yeah. you played with you played hide and seek what's fun about hide and seek um yeah being being hidden, being not found, is if it? you're the one hiding. Is it? Is that? I mean, I know that I've been in the situation I've hidden so well that yeah. that person cannot find me. What do I do then? I have to go, yoo yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then, ah, oh, he's over there. And then that's still not the best part. The best part is when I'm found. Yeah. And then, ah, oh, I found you. <laughs> no, all the, it wells up, that love and that joy wells up when you're found. Yeah. So this is what God does in the world. He hides himself. He hides himself and appears to be the world, all these different things. He hides himself so he can't see himself. All he can see is all the different objects and different people and all this interactions between the different things going on in the world. He's hidden. And that's miserable. Sitting there being hidden while someone's looking for me, 
I wasn't enjoying that part at all. That's why I went, Yahoo! <laughs> yeah. And God does that. He's so well hidden from himself that he actually helps us find, he helps himself, us, find himself. He and that's the guru principle. That's what I experienced when I went down to Melbourne. In the presence of the guru, I was given that experience, the yahoo, here it is, this is what it's like, right? And when I recognised that as being what I was looking for, it, it, it sent me off in the, that direction. And so God not only hides himself, but he also creates the power of grace which can lead us back to experiencing the essential joy and love and everything. He, That's been my experience. He leaves a, a trail of breadcrumbs for, for you to slowly follow and find him. Yeah, it's a little bit more than breadcrumbs. <laughs> yeah. and, and so in, in that regards, the guru is a, uh, is a channel through which one can... The guru is a power. Just as, just as God, everything... Everything, that's another, God's another name for everything, can, can because God is conscious. God can make the whole world hide himself from himself in the same way he can reveal himself to himself. And so there's the, this, this, this power of the guru is a power of, of the universal power. It's a power of consciousness. So the, the guru is a universal power, and because it's universal, it exists in you and me. The guru exists in every one of us. We each have the capacity to recognize the truth, but we don't, we don't know how to get in touch with it. We're so caught up in the, what we see going on in the world, all the things going wrong and all the things we don't like and all the things we focus on all the time, it makes us unhappy. We're so caught up in that, we don't actually have the capacity to recognise ourselves, the truth. And that's why we need a guru in the physical human form because we relate to human beings that we can cut through relating to a human being. So there's a rare human being who, because of the what they've learnt and received from their guru, they become totally at one with their own divinity. They're totally at one, which is with the power of the guru. They've gone beyond all of their separateness and what they do is they manifest that power for us so that it's more, much more accessible. It's like a handle on this cosmic power. It's accessible. And, and through, their, through their, their presence only, they're able to... Um... Yes, yeah, through their presence. But the thing is, of course, they're present everywhere because they are, it is... A, universal power. So once I recognized the guru in Baba Muktananda, 
I was then able to start recognizing the guru in myself and in the world and in others because that same principle can can manifest from many different places once we know how to recognize it. That's why it's so important to have a living guru. Then we learn how to recognize the power of grace as it's manifesting all the time, completely ch- changing. Right? One, of, one of the key things that um, uh, Baba Muktananda brought to the West and sort of made quite open and universal is the the Shakti part initiation or the the Shakti part um, intensive that that you went to down in Melbourne. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about um, about what that is and and how and how Baba was able to bring that to uh, so many people around the world. Well, of course, I knew nothing about Shakti Part. Shakti Part Guru Diksha, which is divine initiation. Of course, that was known to the sages and the spiritual traditions for thousands of years, and it is written about quite extensively in the esoteric scriptures of India. Still there in those scriptures, and really, it's 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 the moment. Shakti is a moment in which we recognise for the first time our own divinity, and we can recognise it in all sorts of different ways. And it can be so subtle we actually hardly know we recognise anything except that our life changes. And so how, do, how, do, how does this come about? How can we help this to come about in us, in us as a person? Because the first thing that we, we had, the first thing is that we want, we, want it, we want it to happen at some level because we have to be present for it to happen. It can't just happen by, well, it could happen by post, but it, we still have to be present to receive the letter. Yeah. So how can we be so present that we're opening to experiencing the truth within our hearts? So how can that condition, so the whole, the whole thing is to set up conditions so that people are the most open they can be to receiving the truth within themselves, to perceiving the truth that's already within themselves. So the, the, the masterful process that Baba just offered us at that time was the Shakti Pad Intensive. He, and in, in, in that program or that event, it's all set up with the chanting and the meditation and the stories and the, the teachings that come with it. It's all set up to allow us to really settle more and more into that experience, allows us to open more and more to the inner experience. And during that process, the, we, we, 
come to recognise in some way, and everyone's different. The experience I describe is different from others. And when we recognise it, then, of course, once, we re- once you recognise something, it doesn't go away. It's always there. Like before and after is different after you recognise something. So that's why it's an initiation, is, a, is that moment of recognition of the truth. And then it can become, that can guide one then. And that's the other reason one needs to have a, a living guru is to continue to provide that guidance, that encouragement, to continue offering the, the practices and the teachings which will keep you on track so that you continue to go deeper and, and that experience becomes more and more predominant in your life. And that doesn't mean to say Shakti but only occurs in the presence of the physical guru. Because the physical guru, the living guru, can set up an appropriate experience anywhere for people. And so currently now, a Shakti Pad intensive will occurs once a year in centers and ashrams all over the world, city yoga centers and ashrams. And it's received by video. Because and the video comes from where the guru is, so it's totally produced under her auspices. Everything in it is carries her power, so she doesn't have to be physically present. But what's present is her willpower. Her her direction is is there, and people receive Shakti exactly as I did those years ago, taking a Siddhi Yoga Shakti intensive with a video, DVD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the world, is, uh, the world keeps evolving. And we used to do Shakti Pad intensives by satellite when the old days when the only way you could get it was by satellite. So we'd be up at 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, participating in this event which would be going on maybe in New York or somewhere else. And it was live streamed to the world. Streamed to the world. Wow. They don't do that anymore. They put it on a DVD so we can play it at a time that's more convenient. Play it at a reasonable hour. <laughs> and did you, did you, um, did you ever have a, a Shakti Pad experience, um, or have you had a Shakti Pad experience in in the physical presence of? of you mean, the have I been in the physical presence of? The guru? Um, yeah, yeah. I've been in the physical presence of Baba and in the physical presence of Guru Mai and uh, it, it, it's, it's, I think probably the best way of explaining it, it is not, it depends on me how I experience that. And certainly, to begin with, my own, the way I was creating that experience was the predominant thing. I would approach it, approach it, I I, I was totally frozen. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, in the presence of the physical guru, so close, you know, what can I do? And that's, it's all in my mind. So that's really... 
although the guru is perfectly capable and does and did cut through all that at the essential inner level, the whole thing's contaminated by my own thinking. But over a period of time, as through, through the unfolding of grace within me and my own practices, um, there's, I have a lot le- of that less stuff going on in my mind. And I'm much more comfortable in the rare occasions when I have been in the physical presence to be able to just sit and enjoy the just the joy, the sheer joy of being in their presence. And they have a, like a power that seeps, seeps through the environment. In well, it stands. feels like the power's coming from them, but in a way it's not because it's already everywhere anyway. What... Because the guru is so established in the experience, their own divinity is in divinity. It's not theirs; it they have become that. That it's just so apparent in their presence what it is that it feels like it's coming from them. In a way, it's coming from them. It just depends how you. Yeah, <laughs> it all you everything it. depends how you see it. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Whether they're like welling it up inside but, you. But or... you know, one of the, I, I've also had very, very significant moments of recognition seeing Guru Mai on the video web, on webcasts that have been sent. It doesn't have to be the physical. In fact, in many ways, it's more, I've had more intimate experience of the physical guru on the video than I could have had just being in their presence with a whole lot of other people. Yeah, maybe because there's less... Uh, and probably less mental stuff getting in <laughs> yeah, the way. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the saver seems to be like such a key part of... Um, not only the organization, but also the development of the person. Um, and the saver, well, well, you can give us a, a rundown of it, but the way I see it as, I suppose, a bit of a, a novice is the service element or, or the giving of, um, of time and, and energy. Um, but here in the ashram, the people doing the saver just seem to be so, so vibrant and happy and, um and warm and welcoming and and helpful um every time i come here they're they're looking in every way possible to to help me out and make sure that i feel welcome um and so it seems to be that there's there seems to be something about it and it seems to be such a key element of of what goes on within within the organization is that is what what what's your experience of 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 been and what's 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 your take on it? Well, saver is a spiritual practice, and what do you mean by a spiritual practice? We mean something that we do that gets us in touch with our own inner truth, the happiness and joy. So, if we're practicing something that gets us in touch with our own happiness and joy well that's what's going to manifest yeah but uh, the point about if if we're doing as a, if we're really doing it as a spiritual practice we're not concerned about the outcome we're not concerned about the result 
We're not doing it so that people are grateful to us. We're not doing it so that people say how well we've done it. We're not doing it because we want something to happen. We're doing it because that's what needs to be done at the moment. And it's just that pure... Just done in the moment because it's that's what needs to be done. It, we can just let it go and enjoy it. And not worry about sort of any reciprocal, uh, reciprocated benefit or any benefit that might occur from it. Why should we worry? Why should we worry about anything? Yeah. That's the problem. We worry about everything. <laughs> and so, in, but in that service, there seems, I, I suppose there's, there's, there's sort of two, two sides to that spiritual uh, journey, I suppose, which is one is that meditative side, which we've sort of been talking about, but then there's the other side, which is that service element, which is uh, brought forth through the practice of seva. And do they, they sort of go like hand in glove a little bit. They do. That's sort of in line with God's manifesting and recognizing the truth at the same time, hand in glove. On the one hand, we're offering our savour, but on the other hand, we're not doing it. God's doing it, and God knows what the outcome's going to be. It's not up to us what the outcome of whatever we do is. If we think we're responsible for the outcome of what we do, we're going to be unhappy because it doesn't always work out the way we think it should work out. And and if we're attached to that, we're going to be unhappy. In fact, mostly in the end, it doesn't work out the way we want it to work out. So we're inevitably going to be unhappy. There's lots of unhappiness in the world. Mm. But if we do things because that's what needs to be done at the moment, not because of what we want to happen, we might have some goals in mind, but those goals might need to change as things unfold, and we're quite happy to change as things unfold. Then there's room for joy. There's room for loving people who've got different views and different ways of being. Regardless of whether any outcome that might be intended in fact arises or not. The outcome's always what is supposed to happen and there's always something to learn from it. And in, in that inevitability there's no is I suppose one one thing that arises against inevitability is, well, if it's inevitable, why why should I do anything anyway? If it's just going to happen well why should you do anything uh yeah 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 and so what am i going to do wake up in the morning just lie in bed all day <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. that's still doing something mm. you can never do nothing yeah you're always doing something even if it's lying in bed or sitting around drinking beer and watching the football you're still doing something yeah so while we're doing something, we might as well do something that leads to happiness and joy. 
regardless of the outcome. Regardless of the outcome. And so you would say that you're you're going to get you're going to get more happiness from doing uh, an act of service than. Well, we don't get happiness; it already exists inside us. The happiness we experience when we totally give ourselves to what we're doing is already there, and it's by letting go and being completely present to what we're doing that that happiness wells up, the joy wells up, the love wells up, the welcome that you receive comes from that love. And so that, and in that personal giving of, of love is, is infectious because you, when I come in here, it's like I, I, I want to be a part of it. And it's probably got something similar to what um, you saw on the front page of that paper and you can see, you could see in uh, Baba's eyes that he has something that you want to learn more about, yeah, and that you want to get more in touch with. And, and I never realised it was already inside my soul. Yeah. That was yeah. the miracle. <laughs> <laughs> and why did I spend so much time searching for something that was already within? And and so go, continuing with your journey, did you continue to have? Um, deep experiences like the one that you had first had in Melbourne or, or, or were you like chasing, chasing that experience that, and, and weren't able to get, to get back there? Well, every moment's an experience. Every moment's an opportunity of discovering something more about the truth or discovering something more about the way in which I hide the truth from myself. (laughs) So if I catch myself criticising someone else, and I'm doing that all the time, I walk down the street and, oh, that guy's very fat or that guy shouldn't be eating so much or that woman shouldn't be wearing clothes that reveal so much of her buttocks. Uh, you know, it, it's so easy to just be criticising everything I see. When I catch myself doing that, when I say, oh, why am I doing this? This is not causing happiness anywhere. I can then just pull back, pull back so my mind is quieter. And then I can start seeing, well, that, that woman, she's a lovely lady. She's probably got a loving family and children to look after and she's probably doing a great job in the world. Well, that man, he's probably really happy and he's quite capable of, of really doing great things for the world. I, I, I don't have to see everything negatively. I can just be and enjoy the moment or not even notice People just enjoy the sunlight and the breeze. And, and so it assists you with your, your choice of perception or, or do you just become aware to the... Because, I mean, on, on you one... Can, I, can, I can only choose how I see things from that place of stillness. 
Unless, unless I can go back to that stillness, I can't, I'm no longer choosing. I'm just getting carried away with whatever thoughts I'm having from moment to moment. And I'm not even aware that I'm thinking. I'm just, I make a judgment of someone and then I think that's the truth. That, that the way I see them, that's how they are. It's not may not be how they are at all, but that's how I see them, and from my point of view, that's how they are. I'm not even aware that I'm actually projecting that onto them. Yeah. But well, when I go back to the stillness, I can see what I'm doing, and I can change it. And you, you have that control over your... Well, you have too. If you go to that place of stillness, you can choose to experience love and joy and happiness. You can choose to be nice to people. You can choose to be compassionate and loving. You can choose to be patient. There's, um, there's, there's something about that, though, which is um, that seems to be, that seems to me to be somewhat at odds with my understanding of of the ego and um and i suppose one of the goals of uh city yoga would be to try and suppress if not get rid of the ego at all i couldn't think of a more horrible fate than to get rid of my ego yeah (laughs) it's my ego is is the way i identify myself as Myself as Christopher McGarry, that's my ego, and and you're Jack, and I'm Christopher. I couldn't live without the ego being able to put myself in the, my place and everything being where it is. My whole world is constructed through my ego. So if I didn't have an ego, I wouldn't have a world. I'd be in some sort of chaos. But the thing is to align my ego with the self rather than let the ego carry on on its own, causing the mind to think destructively about everything and thinking that everything is destructive. If I can align my ego with the truth from inside and let my ego and my mind be still, then I can see the world in a much in the way that I choose to see the world. I can be a lot more constructive in the way I see the world and the way I behave towards the world, and that's the only way I can change the world. So you develop a a uh, a more. You're making the mind your friend. Yeah. Yeah, because I'd, I'd, for for a while, a, an idea has been in um, in my mind that a lot of these uh, meditative practices are about um, are about minimizing um, the the mind, I suppose, for want of a better word. And so, where do they get that idea from? Well, I suppose it's. I would see it as the the mind is sort of the, a cloud between um, 
the the person or the ego uh, and the understanding of of the divine within everything. And so by having that element of mind, all of a sudden you are a separate entity from from God. But in 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 philosophy and and I mean um, Descartes says I think therefore I am and it's become a um, an idea that one of the fundamental aspects of of humanity is our capacity to to think and have conscious choices and so I I sort of viewed. I, I looked at some of those meditative practices as trying to minimize, I suppose, that thinking as potentially a, um, a negation or a minimization of our humanity according to um, that sort of philosophical reasoning. And that I, I knew that was wrong, but oh, and I thought that was wrong. Um, but the way you've, you've put that there, that it's not so much doing away with the mind or the ego, but aligning it with the truth, the truth that the self is an aspect of the, the greater self or, or, or the divine. And you don't see that any more powerfully manifest than in the physical guru. The physical guru is a, it's a, is a perfect example of the ego aligned with God's will. They're still functioning from the ego. They're still the perfect human being in a human form, functioning from the ego with all of the things the ego has, right? They're, they're able to be happy, they're able, they've got emotions, they do things, interact, and all the things. But that ego is aligned with the divine will, and everything that they do is designed to uplift, to make greater. And so they're, 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 they're as, as opposed to being less human, as that line of Most reasoning. Most of us are. <laughs> yeah. But they're, as opposed to being that, they are almost the perfect expression of, of human. That's, you could see it that way. So fortunately, the, the ancient sages have been through all this. They've analysed it and analysed it and they've, they've actually they've done it scientifically. But their laboratory isn't in the world, physics and chemistry or astronomy. Their laboratory is their own inner world. And through exploring their own inner worlds, they've come to understand the process whereby God has become this world, how God has separated his understanding and forgetting who he is and just being the world and how God returns to that. And the fact that the ego is a manifestation of our individual individuality and that can either focus out on the world thinking it's separate from everything and therefore everything is an enemy 
or everything is here for me to manipulate and make the most of, or that same ego can turn inwards and understand that it's a manifestation of God, that every ego, everyone, everything is is a manifestation of the same love and the same joy and happiness. So it's a matter of the, the orientation of the ego, not its presence. So we can make the mind our friend instead of our enemy, instead of just creating misery and enemies and unhappiness, the mind can align itself with our own greatness and create harmony and love and joy. And that's, and coming back to where we started, that's where each and every person has that capacity to be a saint, has that capacity because we all, we all we have, have the that. capacity, but we don't understand how to do that. And that's why we need to have the living guru that gives us that, that, that helps us to recognize our own capacity, our own divinity. And then we need that guidance, that constant guidance as it unfolds. So the way that one of the ways in which the sages expressed that, that they talked about that the inner spiritual energy, and one of the word, one of the names they gave it was Kundalini. And in in our ordinary state as a human. That's after having brought us into this state and this situation and creating this, it goes to sleep and we live our lives in the world lost in all of the things happening in the world. But when that's awakened, it starts to dissolve all of this, this, this all these patterns and behaviors and habits and the ways of thinking that we have and gives us the option of being able to think in more constructive ways, the option of being able to understand the truth of who we are. And it it says when the kundalini is awakened, then it starts transforming us from the inside so that more and more we're able to get in touch with our own joy and happiness and let that fill the world that we live in. So Kundalini Shakti is awakened at the moment of Shaktipat Diksha. And if through our own spiritual practices and efforts we allow that to, to purify us from within, from all of that negativity, we become more and more aligned with the Guru principle ourselves. And we're more and more allow, able to shine that into the world. And so we, we become individually a, a truer... Reflection of, the, of pure grace. We allow grace to manifest through us. We open ourselves to it, to transform us and to transform others around us. It's not, through, not that we're doing that, it's just happening. And why isn't that... Um, experience, or why isn't that um, modus operandi, for want of a better phrase, the the default? Why do we not come into the world 
and experience that straight away? Is it is it got to do with the the hide and seek analogy that we were talking about before? God's hiding from himself. It's not much good playing hide and seek if you're found as soon as the person opens their eyes, yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the other way yeah. to ruin the game. <laughs> you're not even hiding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, well, playtime's over. <laughs> Go home now. Yeah. And so without that level of ignorance, there's, you're almost not, you, you're not uh, appreciative or aware of the the difference that comes with a greater recognition of the universal divinity. So if there wasn't bad in the world, we wouldn't recognize the good. We couldn't enjoy the good. Yeah. So we, there's always, there's just both. There's a mixture. Everything's a mixture of the opposites. It's the world God has become. Why has God become this world? Well, I, the only thing is that the sages say for his own enjoyment. Mm. It's his nature to enjoy this game. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, this, this, this constant performance that's, that's going on. Shakespeare was very wise. All this, what did he say about it all being a play? Anyway. Yeah, the whole world's a stage. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you, you, you mentioned earlier that after having this experience down in Melbourne that you began to, to meditate every day. Yes. And, and how, did, how did you, just from a practical level, how did you go about fitting um, meditation into your work as a surgeon? Because I, I'm sure that work was quite um, taxing on your time and you know, meditation takes time. And so, well, it, I think the first thing is to recognize the commitment that I wanted to do this because I knew what an impact it was ha- going to have or was having already on my life. But I needed to do it in a way that didn't uh, disrupt my work and family life. I was very fortunate in that my wife was, had also received Shakti part in her own different way. So I would meditate every day and sometimes it would just mean sitting on my meditation mat for a few minutes and going out the door. It just, I didn't necessarily be able to meditate an hour every day, but I would meditate for a longer period at least once a week. And since I've retired, I can meditate for a longer period many more days a week. (laughs) Uh, But what I've noticed is that all those years of meditating every day, even briefly, have made my meditations now much more accessible. The, the stories of, of, of the great sages are that once they um, set out on that spiritual path or once they, I suppose, knew, knew what they wanted, they... A lot of them sort of go off into the forest and and live a life of um, live a life of secluded meditation. Was that ever ha- having had that initial experience? Was that ever a thought that crossed your mind that the your work as a doctor and your 
this might be a very unfair question, but your work as a doctor, your family life and, and your, your relationships with the world that they had, they had somehow lost a meaning and that you should just dedicate every waking moment to trying. Never occurred to, to me. It's not, not part of, that's not my spiritual path. My spiritual path is to learn how to get in touch with the truth within me in the life that I lead. In the, the, my life with my family, with the work, with the savour I continue to offer. I do take some time to go to the one of the city yoga ashrams and stay there for a period, but that's only just a brief period of my life at a time. But my I live my life with the family. Yeah, because to to do that step and to to step away from the world would be so prohibitive to so many people. Well, there are people that it suits. Anyway, there's not too terribly many forests left that we can go <laughs> yeah, yeah. live in. Yeah. So we find it, we're, in fact, in many ways, for people to do that when it's not really for them, it's going to be harder because one of the things that when we, as we live our life as we're supposed to live our life, there's many, many lessons for us to learn. And those lessons are vital. If we're living a different life from what we're supposed to learn, we, we, we won't be learning the lesson. And there won't, be, there won't be that sort of practicality or that practical element to, to those teachings to everyday life. Yes. A, uh, a, a religion that requires you to, to walk off in, into the jungle seems like a religion that won't exist for very long, you would think. Well, for, for, the, those times were different when mm. sages lived lives like that. They were different times. Yeah, yeah. And, and so since that moment um, in, in Melbourne, uh, City Yoga has been just a fundamental aspect of your, of, of your life. And how do you think it's helped? Well, let's, I wouldn't put it like that. I would say that within me there's i've been guided towards I, I'm, I'm listening to what the teachings of the gurus are i'm trying to put that into practice i'm doing the practices i'm inquiring into my own behavior and my own way of thinking so i'm doing all of those things and it's giving me more clarity and more ability to find happiness and joy in different circumstances and to share that with others, and and in that way you 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 spread you spread those teachings. Well, the, yeah. Well, if 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 I can be happy and I can be joyful, then that tends to affect other people in a positive way. Yeah, yeah. I'm not spreading anything. Yeah, you just I think it's a yeah. matter of just manifesting what one. One's, what's the, one's own truth. And then people can receive that from... People can respond to that in their own way. But they have to be 
open to it? Well, people don't have to be anyway. People are the way they are. And everyone, everyone has within them the capacity to experience love and joy, an infinite capacity to experience love and joy. Yeah. Well, Chris, I'm, uh, I'm conscious of the time, um, and so that's probably a good place to leave it on that uh, sort of warm, welcoming and uh, inspiring note. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. It's been a uh, very interesting and, dare I say, enlightening conversation. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much, Chris. Thank you.